Hey, what's up, loyal listening audience? We really appreciate you tracking with us on this journey. This is part two of Black Mental Wellness, and I interview a colleague of mine here in northern Nevada. His name is Diaz Dixon, and Diaz has been an executive in the mental health community for many, many years now. He's got a really cool perspective, not only as an administrator, but as a you know, a clinician with a, with a background in helping people, and uh, as a black man from Nevada. So we dive into all those topics, and I think you're going to enjoy it. I continue to learn more and more as I go through this process. I'm honored to be a part of it. I'm humbled by what I don't know and excited by what I have yet to learn. Another great thanks to our founder at Naga Notes, Safisa Rapinga, for pushing this uh, idea of doing a, a series on black mental wellness. Um, we have we have a lot to learn, and I certainly, as a white man in middle America here, I, um, I, I've got some more growing to do, because as much as I think I, I like to think I know about um, the vast diversity of human experience, I really know not very much. But what I do know is that if you want to learn more, you can sign up for a free 30-day trial through Audible. Audible is one of our sponsors. Go to audibletrial.com slash notes. Get your free 30-day trial. Download as much content as you would like, but start with one. And that one you get to keep even if you cancel your trial. Go to audibletrial.com slash notes. Free 30-day trial, free audio download. Get access to their totally unmatched selection of audio content and expand your horizons. Also check out zephyrwellness.org and follow us on our social media platforms, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and sometimes Twitter. You can get more content from us. We continue to produce it in the form of things like podcasts and videos and self-help slides on Instagram. Thanks again for all that you do to help advance the conversation around mental wellness and human connectivity. Enjoy the interview with Diaz. Well, Diaz, thank you for joining us on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, why don't you tell, tell the audience who you are and uh, uh, how you came to be uh, on this show and what you do for a living here in Reno, Nevada. Well, first, Jake, thanks for having me. Um, you know, it's always a pleasure to sit down and talk to, to people who are doing good things in the community and in the world and just really trying to spread positivity and at the same time address a number of solutions that are needed for the day-to-day -day problems that we deal with. And yeah, I'm, I'm Diaz Dixon, pretty much a, a simple black man who uh, born and raised in Vegas, native Nevadan. I came up to Reno back in the, the late eighties for to get my undergrad in social psychology you and defected from Vegas and came to I did. Reno. I left and headed to the blue. <laughs> and we welcome you. We, we, for those of you not familiar with the, the dynamics of Nevada, uh, Northern Nevada does not like Southern Nevada. And I don't know that Southern Nevada even cares about Northern Nevada. No, Southern Nevada tends to think Northern Nevada doesn't even exist. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, that is kind of the, the mindset that they have down there. But we, we know that uh, the North is strong. The yes, is strong. yes. So yeah, I, and when I left here, I left for a couple of years and went to grad school to get my master's in counseling at the University of Iowa and uh, quickly learned that Reno is not cold and that Reno does not have bugs. So I hightailed it back here and uh, 
you know, I, I did some private practice work with people with traumatic, with traumatic brain injuries and strokes for a number of years. And then I did some private rehab, doing some workers' comp type of work. I worked for the state for a while. Most notably, I ran a program for a little over 14 years, a substance abuse treatment facility for women and children called Step 2, which was you know, a program that still has my, my heart. Um, and you know, to, throughout the process, throughout that time, I was able to do a couple of different things that were fun. I worked for President Bush's um, New Freedom Initiative, which was the Cultural Competency and Diversity Network. So for four years, I served on that committee on the national level. And I also worked for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, helping give out money for uh, states that were looking to help people with their mental health services. And today, uh, I proudly sit as the CEO of the Eddie House, which is a homeless youth center. And we have uh, 43 beds here in this particular facility with four other sites that we're just really working on the issue that is youth homelessness, helping them get off the streets, find suitable and gainful employment, address any of their mental health needs and struggles they might have, uh, maybe substance use, whatever, everything that's wrapped up into what brought them to be homeless or has them on the brink of homelessness, we are, we're, we're putting forward and, and fighting through. And uh, now I, I, I humbly sit here on this podcast with a great opportunity to talk to you today. Oh yeah, it's a it's a internationally renowned podcast too. Uh, there there is no limits to the reach of noggin notes. Uh, but uh, I wanted, to, excuse me, <clears throat> I want to spend some time talking about the Eddie House, but also um, youth homelessness and how it differs from uh, adult homelessness. We had uh, we had Pat Cashel on um, and um, and Austin Pollard from the VOA. Uh, several months ago and they talked about a little bit about the what's going on in the adult world of homelessness but that was all pre-covid stuff and before a large explosion uh of of the homeless problem at least in reno but also i know generically across the country so um help us understand what the dynamics are what people are facing um resources resource deficiencies what you guys are are taxed with um and then uh, obviously, we're on, you know, we brought you on because this is, you know, about black mental wellness and talk a little bit maybe how it disproportionately affects people of color or doesn't because I'm not familiar with the demographics. Well, it absolutely does, Jake. And I, our population is different because with youth homelessness, you know, the feds define us in the age category of 18 to 24. So oftentimes kids are coming to us from um, many different angles. They may be coming out of the foster care system. So imagine a kid turning 18 and losing their benefits or losing their system of support. Now you're 18, you're on your own, you need to just go ahead and take off. For all of us, most of us who have kids, and particularly kids of that age, know that our kids would probably struggle if they didn't continue yeah. to have our ongoing support. Um, it's very in the fact that older people who are homeless have been homeless for a while. Mm. And they tend to be probably a little bit more savvy, uh, set in their ways, probably really deep in their own mental illnesses. Whereas these young people are still trying to find themselves as, as young adults, figure out who they are and how they fit into this world. Research shows that 85% of them, if given the appropriate tools and assistance in this age group, um, be homeless as adults, if you can just give them the help. And there's different categories. We've got uh, chronic homelessness, 
which typically is the most well-known. And you see that more so with the older adults that's different than this population. You have episodic homelessness, which can turn into chronic homelessness, but often cases there's been a really bad episode in their life that has shifted or thwarted them towards homelessness. Uh, transitional homelessness, where people are just, it's pretty common where they're just bouncing around. Maybe someone's living from couch to couch. They don't have a really solid place where they're living, moving into different motels, things like that. Our kids are oftentimes the hidden homeless because many of them are working and they look, you know, from appearance like they've got everything all together, um, but they are basically surviving on the streets. What's different for the the, the people of color and particularly African Americans is there's even less resources that are available to them because as you can imagine, you are living in a dominant culture, trying to figure out who you are when you have a healthy environment, you know, and healthy parents that are, that are raising you. Um, oftentimes the young black kids that we're seeing feel very eyes and come with a couple of extra walls of defensiveness, you know, really believing that the world is against them and that oftentimes maybe some incidents that weren't necessarily racially fueled they feel like they are. And it, um, our typical approaches to dealing with homelessness and all, a lot of our mental health approaches are Eurocentric. So we're really focusing here at Eddie House on trying to be as individualized with the care, but taking all the cultural considerations um, into the, the treatment planning with each of them as, as individuals. It's a, it's a daunting task. When I first started, we had a, more of the black kids were failing out than any of the other ones. They'd come in and really just fall out of our program really quickly until we started addressing it as a staff and conscientiously looking at how we could do things differently. You cut out a little bit when I think you said Eurocentric when you, with regard to the interventions. Um, what, what do you mean by that? And, and is, that, is that the word you used was Eurocentric? Yeah, that is the word I used in Eurocentric. And, and I'm sorry, I'll speak up a little bit. I know my speaker's a little, a little weak this morning. So we, um, our typical approaches, and particularly in mental health counseling, even you know when you're looking across the board, they've been founded on um, our European ancestors. Sure, Swiss, Swiss psychiatrists, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so not a lot of the cultural implications in dealing with people of color have come into effect when we're looking at the, the school of thoughts, uh, the different foundations of counseling services. Cultural considerations were, have only been really into play over the last probably 40 years. And even so, they haven't been integrated with all the different, um, all the different teachings. So whether you're talking about gestalt or even, um, you know, some of the cognitive behavioral practices that we use. The, the cultural component is often missed, particularly in the stages of when we're building rapport. And that's where we see a lot of struggle. And even when I was doing some individual counseling and even when I was, in the years I was working at step two, I found early I recognized how, I recognized the shortcomings with the Native American population. And then it wasn't until probably the last 20 years that I recognized that there are a number of shortcomings 
in dealing with the, the uh, African-American population. And then on top of that, you have a lot of distrust from the African-American culture to, to counseling in general, to, me to medical, to health. Uh, and a lot of that has been passed on. So it's, uh, you know, African-American males are one of the last groups to ever go see a doctor when in need. And so that it just creates a, an imperfect storm, if, if we may. Yeah, if you don't mind, I'd like to get a little more granular with this because um, it, we, one of my previous uh, interviews with, was with uh, Dr. Danielle Busby from, uh, uh, from uh, Black Mental Wellness, and she was talking about, my brain is not working this morning, it's too early. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, she, was, she was alluding to some of the same uh, topics and frustrations that you did there as far as the suspicion of the system and distrust in medical in general and then there's a cultural component of self-reliance and i and i get those mm -hmm. what what i'd like to hear more about because I'm, I'm a listening practitioner um i guess i don't know what the cultural components are because i mean we all went through the course of you know we read the sue and sue book uh you know daryl yeah. wing sue for those of you who don't yeah. know he's kind of the forerunner of, of oh, cultural yeah. competence and counseling um but for me it was watching my classmates try to digest that information seemed like it was compartmentalized. It was like, Hey, um, if you're dealing with X demographic, be aware of X, Y, and Z. If you're dealing with Z demographic, be aware of A, B, and C. And it's like, okay, I can kind of intellectualize that. But then you turn human beings into these um, almost dehumanized uh, objects that simply have characteristics to be mindful of, as opposed to, depth of understanding integrated into the approach and and i don't i don't know what i don't know so when i think of you know cultural competency what i want to do is i want to be humble and curious and just ask the person where they are and let them educate me but i'm getting the sense that that's not sufficient and i'm wondering what you're what you're referencing here if you could give some maybe some concrete examples well i, I think you're you're right on par, Jake, with your approach and asking them and allowing them to identify themselves. The, what we all have to do better as practitioners is continue to dig a little bit deeper. So where does that take the relationship once they throw out the general piece of the identity? A person of color, an African-American, will throw out, okay, yeah, well, I'm an African-American male and I'm from the southern part of Nevada. They may stop right there. The defensiveness doesn't come down there. So it's, it's really going a couple of extra steps and also understanding, you know, you, you touched on something when we're saying we're dehumanizing. We got to remember that there are cultures within cultures and lots of subcultures. So right. it's, it's not even a blank approach because even if I, as I speak, I don't speak representing all African-American males on the West Coast. And I think that's a mistake some people make, right? When we go, oh, I met a transgender person in counseling. Uh, therefore, I'm going to ask them and pick their brain about all things transgender. It's like, well, I'm just one person. <laughs> right, right. And understanding that they can't carry the weight. of Right. It would be inappropriate. That they fall in. It would be inappropriate to put that on them. Mm -hmm. But what we can do is continue to dig in on what's their perspective and what is their you know, um, how do they see themselves fitting in the world or how do they see themselves in the particular community in which we're talking? And when they talk about their placement and where they fit in the community, where do they fit? Because we'll always talk about where they fit in the family. 
we'll, you know, we'll do our genogram and our genogram yeah. will break down, you know, all the different, the map of what their family looks like and what their history is look like. But where the genogram misses out is we need to do the same type of work, but it needs to be on their perspective with their identity. Where do they fit within their church, their culture? Where do they fit within blackness for the lack of a better term? Yeah. Uh, it will help define some of their struggles even more so as they're navigating and working their way through whatever they may be, whatever, whatever we might be working with them on. And it, the, it, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, I was, was going to say, it, it almost sounds like we need to rethink how we teach cultural competence, where it's not this, we're not teaching to a non-exhaustive list of cultures. Cause I mean, I, I come from a culture of being bullied on the playground too, you know, uh, being raised by a cop and a teacher that has different um, influences. Um, and you can't hit them all. Like you can't, you can't teach them all. It's almost like we need to rethink how we teach this stuff and go more toward a meeting people where they are, not a, not a trying to fit them into what box I need them to be for, for my own comfort, which sounds like a much harder job. It's, it's more difficult, I think, when you're individually trying to meet people where they are. But we can't ignore the backdrop either. So I don't, I don't know how well, we do that. Well, I think you're 100% right, Jake. We, we have to back up. We got to back up to all of these great things that we have learned, almost to reprogram our approach. Um, you know, and we, we, have, we have a typical approach that we use for the greater amount of clients that the greater amount of people that we're dealing with on a regular basis and that that just doesn't work it doesn't work for everyone and i think if we reprogram the approach we'll find that we're able to dig in deeper with not just black people with with everyone mm -hmm. and then we can start digging into topics that people are afraid to talk about there's all those hidden topics of discussion that uh, this is taboo to talk with someone who's not in my race about. And it's not until we start having those conversations with people outside our race about those things that we've been scared to talk about or uncomfortable to talk about that we can continue to break down walls and see how much more alike we are and how much more productive we can be in finding solutions to our day-to-day -day issues. You know, what I'm hearing is that, um, that it's going to require more humility on behalf of the, in our case, the clinician, if we're doing this in a clinical setting, but in broader society, the, the person who, who needs to do the learning, which is everybody, we all need to keep learning, but it requires humility and it requires a vulnerability, um, which I don't know that people are super excited to embrace because vulnerability comes with risk, risk of what pain, pain of being embarrassed or humiliated or just simply not knowing because it's scary and then um who wants more pain right so 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 it's almost like in a, in a way that we're avoiding pain and while we're avoiding pain we're, we're also not communicating and we're isolating and we're siloing and then we're digging our heels into these these belief systems that are oftentimes incorrect or at bare minimum incomplete mm -hmm. um and and it's not moving forward so i'm trying to figure out i guess as i'm just thinking out loud here, what do we, first of all, where does the fear come from? Because uh, I, I encounter this with the guns and mental health work that I'm doing with Walk the Talk America, where people just don't want to talk about guns because they're, and it's no fault of their own, they're just ignorant of it. Like not everybody knows gun culture, no big deal. Uh, right. Not everybody knows African-American culture, no big deal, go learn it, right? But there's some right. some some inhibition here, some some blockage that 
says, uh, don't go there because you'll be wrong. And if you're wrong, then you're going to be judged or ostracized or something. Mm-hmm. Wait, I don't want to say come? something stupid. I yeah, yeah, yeah. Wrong. I don't want to be uh, uncomfortable. And Is that really it? I mean, because I'm seeing these in, in uh, junior clinicians too. I'm sorry if you see me twitching here. I got an ant problem apparently, and I'm just squashing them all over the place, <laughs> crawling on my legs. It's just, it's really gross. Um, but uh, I'm seeing it in junior clinicians and people coming out of school and even some of our, our older uh, supervisors in the field who are just not interested in letting their guard down. They're interested in maybe browbeating, right. but and this is from like fledgling new graduates. They're like, I'm not here in supervision to learn more. I'm here to have my current worldview validated or verified. And it's like, that's not, no, that's not what this field does. Right. Well, I I think one of the issues with that is so many people that go into the field to heal thyself. Yeah. Yeah. Wounded healers. Yeah. And and they haven't worked through that component yet. So therefore they're still guarded on so many other things. Um, I, I, that's just one thing I think that slows us down. And, and w- but when we can push through, and the key word you said there is being vulnerable. If we can figure out how to be vulnerable and make open ourselves up to be there. We're going to be so much more empathetic and understanding, and we're going to be so much. We're, much, we're going to be much better listeners um, overall, which I think will end up. The result will be will be greater clinicians, and we will be we'll have such a great toolbox in dealing with all the different types of culture. So that's the answer, but what's the how, especially when you're facing a social media culture that's so polarized and binary. And critical. And yeah, 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 right. And, and, and there's the threat of cancel, right? So if I go say, try to say something bold on Twitter and it gets taken the wrong way, which it will because you're limited to characters, um, then I risk losing all of Zephyr wellness or something, you know, because people like want to boycott me because I didn't fall into line with this totally undefinable uh, belief system or ideology, by the way. So like, what do we do? How, how do we, how do we do it? Unless we just turn off social media and do it individually. (laughs) That's what we need to do. Right. Right. Well, I think, you know, the how is the start of this conversation you and I are having. So it starts with the conversation to increase the awareness that it needs to be fixed. So we're identifying that there's some issues here and there are better ways to do it. And then we continue the conversation with coming up with the, what are the next steps? What are the things that need to be changed? Let's analyze this stuff and let's put it into play and let's shift and start changing how we do it. And then be very critical and be ready to accept criticism uh, without taking it personal moving forward. Um, it's the only way we get there. And it's, I mean, this is pretty nebulous because, you know, mm-hmm. you and I are talking about something that's really, really big and really, really grand, but it falls back to the education system. Yeah. D- does it seem like the target keeps moving for you? For me, it does. It seems like it's like, well, one day, hey, here's the target. The next day, nope, not good enough. Here's the target. And we don't even know who's setting the target, whatever that even means. The target is always moving. It feels like it is just, you know, you just kind of got to wake up and try to find it and see where it is today. And, you know, you're looking in the same spot it was in yesterday, but chances are it has shifted somehow, some way. I wonder what we, I I don't know what we do about that other than just to try to continue 
beating the drum of the message that says, hey, it's okay to go, mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know. I don't know, yeah. teach me, right? As opposed to this assertion of here's how to think. Here's what to think. And I think, I think there's a lot of that going on. There's a whole lot of that going on. When there's, it's so much more powerful when you say, I, I don't know, but I want to learn. Teach me, you know, and then let's, let's dig. Let's dig in because it's interesting with a lot of this stuff and these conversations that I've been having surrounding culture and race. I'm talking from my perspective, but I'm learning more, I think, than I'm even teaching people. And I, I'm having, I have a great opportunity to be able to teach people a lot of different things that they didn't know from the feedback they're giving. But I feel like I'm soaking in more. Um, and there are plenty of times where people ask me, they've asked me questions and I said, I, I don't know. And then I had to go dig in and figure out and learn. Um, that, that's what we have to do, particularly as a profession. It's okay. I think we tend to think that, well, we're experts. Everyone's expecting us to be experts. Everyone's expecting us to have the answer. And it's okay if we don't. More podcasts is what I'm hearing. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but that's true. There's, there's a lot of stress on the profession. I don't know how many of our listening audience are professional clinicians versus just um, random people who just want to hear uh, people talk about stuff. But um, I think there's a, a great deal of stress these days with um, – working at home, uh, balancing children, education online, you know, for those of us who are parents, uh, as well as trying to continue holding the safe space for people to come and offload their, their issues. We're now encumbered with dealing with so much more stress of our own. And we, I think, I think there used to be a perception even in our own minds as clinicians where it was like, okay, I've got a different perspective because I went to graduate school and I've got these thousands of hours of training. You can come to me and I'll give you uh, a different angle, but now we're all in the same angle. It's like, well, who, how do we help ourselves? How do we help each other? And I, I don't have that answer either, other than just take time to breathe. Right. Have you, have you encountered this, especially as an organization leader? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it can be very challenging in trying to take time to, to, because, you know, I think one thing that's very different today than it was say 20 years ago is it's hard to turn anything off. Yeah. You know, uh, we're, if we're turning things on and turning things off from work when we get home, whatever, there's other things that are, that are turning on. Yeah. The, the, um, our own mental health as far as clinicians is, is in jeopardy because there's so much stimulus constantly coming our way. And that's irrespective of content. I mean, we can knock, you know, social media for being toxic and all that, but even if it were all full of, you know, rainbows and blue skies and green lights, it's still just a bombardment of sensory overload that our brains simply are not equipped to handle or digest. So we do have to learn to, to breathe and, and turn it off. You know, I, I want to get back to the, the cultural conversation with regard to like, you know, the, the, the threatening language that we see on Twitter and social media and all this stuff and all the, the, the binary hyperbole. Are you as an organization leader concerned at all about litigation over not doing the right thing. And I put that in air quotes that the audience can't see because this is audio, but you know, doing the right thing, which is one of those other moving targets where it's like, well, the target here today is this thing, but then tomorrow it might be somewhere else and nobody bothered to tell you, but now you got a lawsuit on your doorstep. But are you concerned about that at all? 
Well, you always have to be, you know, running an organization, you always have to do your best to take a look at protecting the organization from a legal standpoint. Uh, that's why you have a really good board. So mm. difficult ones, I make sure that everything's documented and run things by the board that anything that might be even slightly questionable. And that takes a lot of weight off of my shoulders personally. Uh, and here at Eddie House, we've got a fantastic board in that aspect. The, you know, for most organizations, more organizations than not do not have great boards. Mm. Um, you know, I've got, uh, I've got board members, I've got an attorney on the board who will ask questions that are challenging, but they're always pertinent. So that helps balance that out. And then I'm always making sure that I've got really good, competent people around me. So, you know, I've got a great staff, so they know when to ask the questions, uh, when, to, you know, they always know to make sure the documentation is taken care of. Now, with those pieces in place with strong staff and a, and a really strong board, that alleviates that fear of me constantly thinking about that. So it's not on the forefront of my mind. Usually I'm thinking about services and money. How do I raise enough money to provide the most adequate or the beyond adequate, the, the most appropriate services for the, the uh, individuals in need. What percent, if you, and I don't know if you know these or not, if you're just taking it off the top of your head, but what percent would you say you're, because uh, you're not a homeless youth and you corrected that, I appreciate that because I want to talk about that a little bit. It's 18 to, to 24, I think you said. Um, yeah, that and, that, and the thing that is homeless youth. So, yeah. Right. And, and the reason it's not under 18 is because those children would ostensibly be cared for by social services, right? Right. Okay. Right. So, yeah, you're right. So what percentage of your uh, youth that you serve, the young adults, come from foster care or the quote unquote the system and then end up homeless? And then how do you, how do you na navigate that? Because uh, from my understanding, they're supposed to have some sort of funding if you age out of foster care. But yeah, they, again, so they're not equipped. That's true. So when they age out of foster care, if they follow certain rules and guidelines at the end of their foster care as they're turning 18, they do have money that follows them. So they'll have about $650 a month that follows them leaving out. You and I both know that $650 that's a month. not even, yeah, no. Yeah, that, that's not going to carry you very far as, you know, when you're, you got a job, then they, great, that's a nice little bonus on top, but it's still very difficult but you, in comparison to having a health family to go back to for, for Thanksgiving or anytime you're struggling. Mm -hmm. But I would say it's greater than 60% of our kids have been in the system at some point in time. Wow. And we, there was a while for 45 days, we took over a contract to help out the county. There are a number of kids between the ages of seven and 17 that had been uh, exposed to COVID and foster parents were saying, nope, don't come in my house. Wow. So they had nowhere to go. So we were a short-term facility and taking care of those youngsters. And you can imagine the impact that that's going to have on you as a 12-year-old when all of a sudden you have no place to go. You can't go back to your foster parents. You have to go into another institution and then to come back where your parents, Jake, your parents would have never said, oh, wait, you're, you could potentially be sick. Don't come in my house. That's Go unbelievable. Yeah. So, I mean, it's... The, I can't the, believe they're allowed to do that. Yeah. That's crazy to me. That sounds like abandonment. Yeah. Yeah. 
it was difficult. I've, I've seen some stuff in my day. That's that's a first. That is a first to to turn away a kid who, because he's sick. <laughs> yeah. Man. So yeah. this, I mean, with that 60%, I mean, we're looking at two thirds of the kids who are between the ages of 18, 24, are living on the street. We're, we're involved in the system at some point. That's a systemic failure, right? That is a total systemic failure. What's the solution there other than um, a massive shake? And I don't want to make this, you know, too Nevada centric political, but like a massive shakeup of the De- department of health and human services. Like, like how do, what, what, like, what (laughs) how do we let them slip through the cracks that much yeah well i I think we have to figure out what are the things that we do if there are preventative things that can be done so that parents don't lose their kids to the system yeah they don't deserve to lose their kids to the system maybe you know um, i'll give you an example yesterday a, a gal came in she's just over the age of the individuals we serve she's 24 weeks pregnant, has no place to go because she was in a domestic violence situation. She has a full-time job, was going to have to live in her car. Last night would have been the first night she slept in her car. She can't get into a domestic violence um, shelter because there's a waiting list. Because of COVID, they're slow to take people in. Mm -hmm. She also has a child in the system. So if she stays in compliance with social services, she'll be able to get her child back. Well, this would have taken her out of compliance to lose her child if she's living in her car. Yeah. And she's outside of the age group in which we serve. Yeah, social services, to my uh, experience, doesn't help the parents. They don't, they don't find the parents' assistance that often. They, they help the kids. Oh, right. But the, maybe the help needs to come before. So we, right. she actually, she's actually now staying in our emergency bed. And she will stay here until she can get her next check and be able to get her own place. Good for you guys. So that that's allowed then by whatever funding sources you have. That's not a hard limit on the the age. Uh, technically, it has been a pretty hard limit. We uh-huh. but we don't. I mean, we don't have any funding that will take care of that. I can apply towards her. Yeah. But that's the that's just the human part. You that's got right it. There yeah. where just, that's right there. she's bawling, and yeah. you're looking at this domino effect helping her for these next couple of weeks is not helping just her. It's also helping the kid, but you're you're asking like, how do we fix the system? Like there's a crack right there. So I don't have, I don't have the answer. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to sound like we're heroes, but what, what I'm saying is there, there are just so many things that are broken in our system um, that we just need to, we need to address. We need to really take a good hard look at. And here's well, something we want to save from falling in the homelessness. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, because the, the ripple effect that you, to which you alluded about, you know, the kids and then everybody else they touch. And uh, it's, it's not, you know, if you're listening to this going, oh, I don't care. I'm never going to be homeless. And why, why should I care? It's like, because your kid shares the playground with that other kid. And if that other kid is yes. hungry, uh, being abused, neglected, comes to school, angry with a chip on his shoulder and punches your kid, now you're affected. So, uh, you know, people, I, I hear that sometimes from people and it's like, no, you can miss me with that philosophy. Um, but again, it sounds like we just need to rethink entirely the way that we go about it. It's like, it's almost like we've got this relic system of yesteryear, decades old that no longer fits the, the current 
model of society and we just need to reinvent it like to totally blow it up and and come up with something brand new um, but unfortunately that takes a lot of time and political will and spine and uh, cost although yeah. in the in the long run it'll, it'll likely end up saving more money um as we know preventative treatment that kind of thing that also doesn't get funded um yeah it will save more money um and that's two systems now you and i have decided we got to break down and yes. <laughs> hit the restart on in a, in a, we could, in a 45 and we could talk insurance too and throw a third one on there if you want oh man boy yeah that's a that's a whole nother one we you and i are now doing a mini series not even a mini series a full-on docuseries i'm good with that i got i got time <laughs> Not doing anything. Right on. Right on. <laughs> hey, I'll, speaking of time, I want to respect yours. I know you got a meeting and you got to jet off to. This is great. I mean, we very short period of time. We covered a lot of content, and um, I appreciate that you allowed the conversation to get into the into the details a little bit and and give some people some some picture. Uh, so we're not talking up in the the surfacey content area all the time, which is you know nice for checking boxes, but it doesn't actually move the conversation forward. So. Thank you for allowing this to go into process. Um, one thing I've been doing lately with uh, with these podcasts is asking the guests uh, to leave the audience with something. So some some uh, invitation or exhortation or uh, just a just an inspirational quote or some takeaway of some kind. What what would you leave our listeners? You know, I am a huge Maya Angelou fan, and um, you know one of the things that I love that she said is that. People will rarely remember what you said, and they will most likely not remember what you did, but they will always remember how you made them feel. Mm. And so if we can think about giving someone a positive vibe today, make somebody feel good today. Yes. Because it is, uh, it is momentum that we need, particularly in today's world. I agree. Thank you. Very well put. Um, Diaz Dixon, CEO of the Eddie House. How can they reach you or the Eddie House if people want to support what you're doing? You know what? We can go to Eddie House, E-D-D-Y-H-O-U-S-E dot org. Come check us out. We've got a brand new website that just went up the other day. You can get involved with us in, in, in many ways. We can even, if you want to volunteer from afar and do a Zoom group with our kids, you can do that. Uh, and uh, we, we, are, we welcome anyone who wants to be a part of the Eddie House family. That's super cool. I didn't know you're doing Zoom groups from uh, distance. That's neat. Yeah, we are. We are. That's cool, different, man. It's different perspectives. Thank you. Thank you so much for making time. I appreciate you. I appreciate the work that you've done in the community and continue to do. Step two is a better place uh, for your existence. I, did, I didn't know you'd been there 14 years. I thought I was eight or nine. That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was a long time. That That's crazy. Time. Um, but uh, this this new adventure is going to be is going to treat you well and you're going to uh, continue leaving your mark on the Northern Nevada area. So um, thanks, man. It's, it's nice to know you. And I look forward to more of these conversations. Uh, on behalf of the Noggin Notes team and the Zephyr Wellness family, we wish you all great mental wellness. Take care. Take care.